This morning we'll be reading <coughs> this morning we'll be reading from Romans 8:18 8, through 30. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for the opportunity we have to open it, to learn from it. We ask that you would soften our hearts now to your spirit uh, and that we would be convicted of sin, that our, our hearts would understand the magnitude of sin and the corresponding magnitude of your grace, and we would praise you for it. Um, please speak through Kevin now and guide his words um, and bring us to repentance and praise. And I ask this all in Jesus' great name. Amen. Amen. You guys can be seated. Must be spring break, right? <laughs> Speaking of spring break, uh, I just want to take a minute before we before we dive into the, the the text this morning. As you guys know, we when the students are here, well, over the summer it tends to not be as bad because a lot of you guys have to take summer classes. But um, we have about I that last count thirty two different students that I know that are on missions trips this week. So if you guys would just bow your head for a moment. Um, we've got people in St. Thomas. We've got people in Miami. We've got people in Ireland. Um, we've got people in South America um, just doing various things, giving up their week off from school to take the gospel uh, to the world. So if you would just pray for them, and then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spend a moment in prayer, and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for um, the, the privilege and the honor it is to, to gather together um, this morning to worship your name uh, for what you've done. God, I thank you for uh, the, the students that we get the privilege of 
uh, doing ministry with here in Gainesville, many of whom uh, during this week are uh, in places like St. Thomas, uh, Miami, Ireland, uh, South America, uh, taking the gospel uh, tangibly and in spirit and in truth to people that um, do not know you. God, I pray for those doing disaster relief that you would give them um, extra energy this week as they uh, just pour out energy this week trying to clean up and rebuild places that were devastated by the hurricanes. Um, I pray for those that are in Miami helping church planners get new churches started. Lord, that they would uh, meet tons of people, that they would uh, have amazing opportunities to share the gospel and that they would encourage the church planners that are on the ground in Miami. For those in Ireland uh, trying to start student ministries on campuses that um, they would find uh, Christians who are already faithfully serving that they'd be able to encourage them and lead more people to Christ. And for those that are doing uh, missions to bring clean water to South America, Lord, that, that through that uh, act of service, to help build these systems that are gonna bring clean water to villages that they would know that this is being done because of the love of Christ and that these people are there, these, these students are giving up their vacations to love on people. So God, thank you for your great love to us that motivates us to do these types of things. Be with the students and those leading the teams this week and may it reap a great harvest for the gospel. May it make much of your name, Jesus so that we will continue day by day to declare the excellencies of our God and what he's done. Jesus, thank you for this opportunity this morning to preach your word, and we ask this all in your name. Amen. Well, thank you guys for being here. If you guys don't know who I am, my name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here. I uh, appreciate you guys being here this morning. Um, some of you guys that have been around here a while, as you know, um, I am a really big sports fan and big sports fan. I'm not a multiple, per I don't have multiple personalities. Uh, <laughs> I'm a big sports fan. And, be and because of that, um, I, know, I know some of you guys don't care about sports, so I apologize for my introduction right off the bat this morning. Some of you guys are like, please don't talk about sports. Sorry. Um, but, but I'm going to talk about, a little bit about why I love sports so much. One, one I grew up playing sports, and so there, it's just kind of naturally in my blood. Uh, you can see it in my oldest son. He, he's, he, to be honest, Jackie, I'm sorry, baby, but he takes after you. He's a little uncoordinated. Um, he doesn't really get it. So, <laughs> her mom is here, by the way, and is not happy with what I just said. Um, sorry, sir, I know her well. So, <laughs> Um, but he loves sports, and so he, he puts his all into it, and it's, it's really kind of cool to see, even though um, he's not going to have a ton of natural ability, he's still going to work really hard at it. And, and so I love watching sports, I love playing sports, I love watching other people play sports, I love other people talking about sports, I love arguing about sports. Um, pretty, mu pretty much everything that kind of surrounds that, I, I just love it. And, you know, specifically I love team-based sports, even curling Right, like seeing those two people just like, you know, move that broom on the ice and like, like and yelling at each other. Like I watched the Netherlands mixed doubles team play against the Chinese mixed doubles team and like I found myself like, she's not screaming loud enough at him to like move the broom enough. I just love team sports. I love the way that you have to work together. I, specifically, I love football. The family atmosphere in the locker room of a football team is just incredible, you know, and and. You know, you know what I love about team sports is that it brings people together and kind of forces them through even all the madness that can kind of be surrounding us as a culture. Sports teams typically don't have those problems. 
You know, like people just, they, we, they find a way to make it work. You know, when you're there battling with one another in a sport, I just love how that works out. And so, but it, you know, a lot of the things that I find fascinating about sports, probably the thing I find most fascinating is fans. And myself being one, it, it, <laughs> it kind of adds it in there. But, you know, I, I, first of all, I'm a fan of many teams, most of them bad. And so, I, you know, I have a, a propensity to, to you know, make myself miserable by cheering for these franchises that are just miserable at, at everything. But, you know, the, the, the fascinating thing about fans is that their support of their team often defies logic and reason. And I think that's one of the, the reasons why I love kind of talking with fans and seeing, like, fans always have hope. Like, for, for me, I grew up outside of Washington, D.C., so I'm a Redskins fan. And the Redskins have been miserable for about 20-plus years. Like, bad. Probably one of, like, the five worst franchises in the NFL. Every year heading into the regular season, Redskins fans are full of hope that this is their year heading to the Super Bowl. And I'm, you know, I'm always like, do you see the same team I do? Like, the, the team hasn't changed much. They're bad. Like, nothing's changed. Even you guys down here, like, when we moved to Florida and I realized how big college football was down here, I learned something pretty quickly. I mean, last year, no offense to you Gator fans, because I know you love your team. The number of people that were convinced that you guys were going to beat Georgia in the rivalry game this year— I, I love you guys. There was no way. And I had someone like take me aside and be like, no, you don't understand. Two years ago, we were bad and we beat that team. I was like, two years ago, Georgia was bad too. They're not. <laughs> right? right? But that's the fascinating thing about fans is they have this hope for their team, even if everything is stacked against them in the present, they hope for the future of their team. That, that no matter what, it's going to work out. They're always one coach away, one player away, one big play away, that, that something big is going to happen. And, and, and one thing I think you need to know about God is that God is in the business of that kind of future hope, but he actually follows through on it. Unlike the way most of our teams, we have this great hope in what they're going to do, and then they don't always follow through. What we've been seeing as we've studied the book of Romans is there is a great and future hope for those who are in Christ, and it will not fail. It is, take, it is guaranteed, kind of like the same way you know Tom Brady is going to be in the Super Bowl again this year. You can take it to the bank that when God promises something, he is going to do it. That it is in his character and nature, and that is who he is. If you'll turn over to 1 Peter chapter 1 with me, I love what Peter says about our God here. Like Starting in verse 3, look at what he says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. I love that, right? Peter just has this great hope in what God has done and what he's going to do, right? We are living in a time of 
looking unto Jesus as our living hope because Jesus is alive and is raised from the dead. And in him, all of our hopes for a great and glorious eternity is found. Because of Christ, we have hope. Though we were dead in sin, we are alive to God through Jesus. We are adopted as sons, as we saw last week, freed from sin, freed from death, given an inheritance. And this means that no matter what, no matter what trial you may be going through, no matter how hard of a season of life you may be in, that God is able. Now last week we saw that God is not able just to save and adopt, but he names us heirs. And so today we're going to talk about how that inheritance that God promises all believers comes with great hope and confidence. I've told you guys often as as I've been up here preaching, I think one of the major barriers the church has today, at least in the U.S., is we talk a big game about our love for God and our hope for Him, but we don't really live it out. We don't really believe that God is as great as the Word says He is. And so when we're living life in the midst of our suffering just like everyone else around us because that's a universal human thing is to suffer. When we suffer just like everyone else, God doesn't look great. And what we're going to see this morning in the text is that in the midst of suffering is where you can have hope and make God look glorious. Look at verse 17 of chapter 8. That's where we finished last week and it transitions into what we're looking at this week. It says, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So verse 17 gives us the context for everything that we're going to look at today in verses 18 through 30, that we are children and heirs with God, and we will also suffer. Meaning, one of the things that we need to remember is that Christ suffered greatly here on earth. He was rejected by the very people that he was sent to save. He suffered beatings and persecution and ultimately suffered the crucifixion, one of the most brutal uh, devices of capital punishment mankind has ever created, that Christ went through that suffering. And so to identify as a son of God and as a heir with Christ means we identify with his sufferings. And so So if you look at verse 17 and and we're talking about all this hope and how great God is and how, how amazing it is, right, that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and that we have hope in a great God who calls us and adopts us as his sons. And then you read verse 17 and verse 17 says, wait a minute, you're telling me how great God is and how great the good news is and how great it is that I get to be with Christ for eternity and then you're telling me I will have to partake in suffering with him That doesn't sound that great. It doesn't sound that great to call myself a son of God and then partake in the sufferings. Is is it really worth it? Is it really worth it to be a disciple of Jesus and sign up for the life that I'm going to be signing up for? And everything from here on out is Paul saying, yes, it is worth it, and here is why. All right, so look at verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. 
You know, those are some pretty big words Paul is spitting out there. He's basically saying if we realize what eternity is going to look like, the present sufferings we're walking through right now aren't going to seem like much of anything at all. If we fully grasp and comprehend the goodness of God and being in his presence for eternity, whatever you may be walking through right now is going to seem like nothing in light of that. And so as I was sitting there and I I read verse 18, because verse 18 is kind of one of those big verses that we like to give, you know, it's one of those memory verses that we like to give people if they're walking through a difficult season or whatever else. But here's the issue. Most of us, we we can read that verse, but that verse doesn't mean anything to you if your view of God is not big enough. That verse doesn't mean anything to you if the future hope you're looking towards and the glory that's to be revealed to us is not big enough. So let me, let me pause for a second and, and, and tell you about the God we're talking about here. Right, this is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God who who allowed a people to be enslaved to the Egyptians and then delivered them from the biggest world superpower at the time. And that on their way out of that nation were given gold as they were being asked to leave. A God who parted the Red Sea for them as they were trying to escape and then as they wandered in the wilderness for years, eventually led them into the land that he had promised Abraham and delivered over the the powers that were in that particular area. This is the God who protected David in the midst of being under attack from the king Saul and then his own children later on. This is a God who delivered Jonah in the midst of his obedience by saving him by being swallowed by a fish. Can you imagine? that? That's the type of God we're talking about here, that, that Jonah is thrown overboard for his disobedience to God and not heading to Nineveh, and yet God delivers him through being eaten by a fish. This is the God who looks at all of humanity dead in their sin and rebellion towards him and delivers them by sending his own son to be the sacrifice for their sin. In my own life, I've seen God deliver me from addiction to sexual sin and abuse of alcohol. I've seen God deliver men and women who were in marriages wrecked by adultery. I've seen God deliver people from cancer. I've seen God deliver people from demonic activity. Guys, my biggest fear for us as a church is that when we pray for God to do things, we pray to a safe God who might answer safe prayers. It, I, I mean, it's, you know, God helped me to have a decent day at school today. God, I pray that my flu systems, symptoms only last two days, not three. Right? It's like we're afraid to ask God to do something supernatural. When in reality, we read of God doing supernatural things all the time. Constantly, that's what he's doing. You know, well, you know, I'm afraid if I ask that big thing and God doesn't answer it, then, you know, then I will lack faith. No. God still acts according to his will, but it does not mean that he is unable to ask 
answer you asking for something big. Now, now hear me on this, because inevitably when I start saying, ask God for the big thing, someone's going to walk out of here and pray for a Porsche. God, you know, God can do the big thing. I'm driving a Camry. I want, I want a Lamborghini. What about you driving a Lamborghini will make God look glorious? What, a, what about your prosperity will make God look glorious? But if you see God deliver you in the midst of suffering and pain, guess what? God looks pretty glorious. Right, those are the type of prayers, and that's the type of God we're talking about here. God, God is bigger than our suffering. God is bigger than our government. God is bigger than the culture stacked against us. And everything that Paul is saying here is that we can lean into the future hope that God has promised us because he is in the business of delivering his people so that he looks great. Guys, this church almost didn't get planted. Think about it. We've seen, I, I've, I've lost, I don't know off the top of my head, tons of people come to know Christ. Eternities changed because of the tireless work of men and women in this church advancing the gospel here in Gainesville. We've seen the church on a grander scale be changed because by nature our church is constantly in flux with students coming and going and we're constantly sending people back out into the mission field making a difference in a church somewhere else so that the gospel might be proclaimed. That's what God is doing. Do you know that two weeks before we ever had our first church service, which by the way we are celebrating in just two weeks, five years of this church being here, that two weeks before our first service, we had announced it, we were ready to go. The guy that we had signed a lease with for a building ripped the lease up in front of us. God provided a building, a place for us to meet. We were there for about three and a half years, and it met all of our needs, including the weeks where people were sitting on the floor because we didn't have enough chairs. That, that this is what God does. One of the things I, I prayed about before we came here is that God would just kind of organically allow us to do missions both stateside and internationally. And somehow we are the, we, we, we can barely pay our own bills and yet somehow we've planted a church in Barranquilla, Colombia. Have, have no, I have no idea. It's like, it's like we're, you know, we're, we're like this young kid that has a, a, a kid. And sometimes it's a little messy. And yet in the midst of all of it, this is how you know God is in it. People are getting saved here in Gainesville. People are getting saved in Columbia. People are getting baptized and discipled and walking with Christ because God looks most glorious when you and I need him the most. And so Paul is saying here in verse 18, I consider the sufferings, all the hardship of this present time are not worth comparing to what we're going to see in the future. He's like, lean into this hope because I've just got done promising you that you are going to walk through seasons of suffering. Now look at verse 19 through 22. Right, I love this, right? Because he says, he's, he's just got done saying, lean into this hope. And he's like, look, if you're a Christian and you think you're, you can't really relate with anyone who's walking through suffering, look at this. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. 
for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Now this is one of those passages where if you're just walking through the book of Romans and you read that, you're like, what in the world is Paul talking about? What is going on here? And what Paul is trying to say is this. If you think you're ready for Jesus to come back, if you think you're ready for that future hope, creation itself longs for it even more than you do. That back in Genesis chapter 3, when man rebelled against God, God placed a curse not just on humanity, but on all of creation. And that ever since that moment in Genesis chapter 3, creation has been crying out for God to restore it to its original glory and original design and original intention. Right? It says there that creation was subject to futility, and that word means vanity or alienated. Mean that God subjected his own created order to the curse to punish men and drive them towards himself. In verse 22, it says that nature itself is groaning, suffering, longing for God to restore life back to the way it was in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. That everything at this point is in decay. That's one of the things I find fascinating, and maybe, maybe I don't understand science enough, but if... But if, if the one thing I kind of remember about physics class was the, the, uh, the second law of thermodynamics, where like, et, like all things were moving from order to disorder, and yet much of what we see in understanding of science today seems that like everything's saying that order's moving, mo- disorder's moving to order. So you have this law saying that everything's moving from order to disorder, which by the way would agree with what we see in scripture, and then we have science now going against us. And maybe I don't understand the science. But everything we see here is that creation is in decay. It's dying. It's groaning, longing for God to restore it. And just as we long for that glory, so does nature around us. And hidden there in verse 22 is this little gem that Paul shares that most of us miss. But look at what he says. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together. Look at this. In the pains of childbirth until now. Now, I have seen my wife give birth to two children, and I don't know how you ladies do it. I really, I really don't. It, it is like one of those just like amazing moments where you sit there and it's like pain, 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 child. And here's like the crazy thing about this, right? Paul's actually being like really specific here about what he's saying. That as we sit in this pain with creation, walking through suffering, it's like childbirth. Every woman who's going through labor longs for it to be done. And as we sit here on this side of eternity, longing for God to restore all these things, 
future glory will be like when that child comes around. And here's the thing. Here's how I know that Paul's example is perfect, right? We're, Paul has just got done saying in verse 18 that, that once we get on the other side of eternity, that it's going to appear like everything we walk through is going to be like nothing. And I have still, I still do not understand this, how women have multiple children. Because in the middle of childbirth, there's like nothing but pain there, and then all of a sudden that child's there, and it's like they don't even remember what they just went through. Like both times, Jackie was in pain in childbirth, and they handed our, ch- our sons to her, and it was like sh- nothing happened. This is one of these beautiful things that God does, that suffering gives birth to something new, and creation will be restored. And not just creation, but you too, if you are in Christ. He says in verses 23 through 25, and not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? Everybody tracking what he says there? He's like, if you see it, you're not hoping it. You just know it to be a reality. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Paul's saying, like, look, not just creation, but you too. And I love this. He calls us the first fruits of the Spirit, meaning everything we experience as a believer now and seeing God change our lives and mold us more and more into the image of Christ if you are a follower of Christ is a taste of what future glory is going to look like. As you see sin put to death on a small scale here on earth, the longer you walk with God and the more you look like Him is a small glimpse of what eternity is going to be like. Life here on earth as a Christian means that as we become more like Jesus, we are getting a taste of what is to come. And so all that we are talking about here, fighting with sin, being saved, future glory, in the now, Paul's saying, live and rest in that hope because God will move. The way he moved for Israel, the way he moved for David, the way he moved for Jonah, the way he moved for you in Christ, he will move again. Rest in that future hope. Now I love this, right? Look at at what he says to hope in, though. Not only the creation, but we ourselves who are the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we eagerly await for adoption as sons, the redemption of our body, for in this hope we are saved. So he's talking about the gospel, waiting for God to move. He says, live in that hope. He doesn't say... Rest in the hope of putting your sin to death. Does it, he doesn't say rest in the hope of learning all the scriptures. He doesn't say rest in the hope of being the best Christian you could possibly be. What does he say to rest in? God. Rest in God's promises and what he's going to do. In hope because salvation belongs to God and we are waiting for him to fulfill the next promise. The good news of the gospel is that our confidence is not in ourselves, but in a God who acts. 
and a God who moves and a God who keeps his promises. You will fail. God does not. That, that's everything. We're, that is everything here in Romans 8. Everything here in Romans 8 is Paul saying at the end of Romans chapter 7, I am a mess in my sin. How in the world do I have any hope? And then he runs to this. God is my hope, not myself. God is my hope. God is my hope for now. God is my hope for the past. God is my hope for the future. Everything rests on him. And then when he moves into verse 26, he's going to kind of dwell on three inescapable truths of what it means to be resting in the hope of God. Right, the first of those is the one that we just saw. Right, that Christians always have future hope. That even when things get to their lowest point, that we have hope that God is going to be restoring all things to himself. If you turn over to Colossians chapter 1, right, look at what Paul says there. He says, starting in verse 19, For in him, that is Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Do you realize how big of a deal that is? That the fullness of God dwelled in Christ and through him to reconcile to himself all things. Whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That reconciliation, we now partake in this hope that God gives us in Christ. And so there's always this future hope that God is going to move, that God is going to deliver. But then we see in verses 26 and 27 a second truth. Right, look at that. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes with us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So one, we rest and we have confidence in the promises of God and the future hope that it entails. But secondly, we rest in the fact that the Spirit dwells inside of believers. As let, me, let, me, let me share something with you. If you are a Christian here this morning, the Holy Spirit dwells inside of you. And Paul is saying right here that that Spirit is doing some pretty amazing things. Right? We talked in my community group over the last two weeks that the Holy Spirit, that it does more than most of the time what we kind of view it does. That most people tr struggle to understand the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And, and, and here's the deal, right? The Holy Spirit is not just some genie that gives you whatever gifts you want. That's usually the extent of what most people's doctrine of the Holy Spirit is. Oh, I, I know the Holy Spirit. It's the one that gives me the gift and I can speak in tongues or prophesy or whatever and you're always wanting that next gift and basically what God becomes to you is the Holy Spirit is just kind of that magical genie that, that will do whatever bidding you want. He's so much more than that. Look at Ephesians chapter 1 with me, right? I shared this with my community group, and some people in our community group just were like floored by this. Starting in verse 13, 
In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, look at this, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Guys, the Holy Spirit is not just some gift giver. He is the seal and promise that you belong to God. I use this example in my community group. How many of you guys eat peanut butter? Most of the room, right? Because peanut butter is fantastic, right? Common grace. Right, and you, if you unscrew that jar of peanut butter for the first time, what is there on, when you open that jar of peanut butter? Perfection. Before you get into that perfection, what's on top of that perfection? A pressurized seal that hopefully says GIF. That's right. Amen. Some of you guys are hearing me right now. Some of you Gentiles are still eating Peter Pan. I don't know what's going on with you guys. But you, you unscrew that top and there's a seal there. And that's, you know what that seal is telling you? This peanut butter is safe. It hasn't been tampered with. We're standing behind what's in this jar. That it's good for you. Guys, that is what the Holy Spirit is. You are sealed by the Holy Spirit so that when anything comes in your life, passing judgment, throwing accusations at you, uh uh-uh, I belong to God. I've got the seal. I belong to Him. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is my portion forever. And I belong to him, and he has given me the Holy Spirit as a promise and a guarantee of that salvation. That is what Paul is talking about here in Romans 8. That's the picture of the Holy Spirit we have. And not only that, that Holy Spirit is a seal, but look at what else he says the Holy Spirit's doing there. As God declares, this person is mine, if the Holy Spirit inside of him, that that Holy Spirit is also helping you now. It's not just there sitting there as a seal, but it's actually helping you. I love that Jesus says he has to leave in the book of Acts because the, he, that you want the helper to come. That's what he tells his disciples. You don't want me to stick around forever. You want the helper to come. And as the Holy Spirit comes, look at what it, Paul says is happening here. That in suffering and trials in this life that we are going to be lost in them and that when we are at our lowest, even if you don't feel like you can pray and you don't know what to do, the Holy Spirit's doing it for you. That the Holy Spirit in our weakness prays for us, searches our hearts and mind and intercedes to God on our behalf even when you aren't. What could be better than that? What could be better than a God who intercedes to himself on your behalf when you are too weak to do it? This is the hope that we have. It doesn't matter how low you are. God is searching your heart. He's searching your mind. He is interceding for you. I, I, thought, I thought about this, like how, like how does this work? The only thing I could think of is, is that God is doing for you and for me exactly what we need. 
a couple weeks ago, my, my, my oldest son, Gideon, ran his first ever marathon, and I use that term loosely. It was like a, a mile and a quarter or whatever, but he's six. And I agreed to run it with him. Now, guys, I, I don't run any further than the couch to the, the bathroom, typically. Right? That, like, that is the extent of it. And so I'm like, I'm a little nervous, but here's what I, I said. All right, Gideon, I'll, I'll run that with you. I want to I do that with you. I'll, I'll run that mile with you. And my sister, she's amazing. Some of you guys know my sister. She's like this crazy fitness buff. She did like training with him and all these things, which I probably should have been doing myself, but didn't. And one of the things that was fascinating is, is you know, Gideon's six. And so when you start a race, guess what Gideon wants to do? He wants to just like take off, like shot out of a cannon and move. And we had trained him, and we were there with him to be his encouragement. Nope, we're going we're gonna to pace this, dude. We're going to run this whole thing. We're not going to stop. We're going to pace it. And so as we're on that run, first thing, that they, 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 they say on your market, set, go. And all of his little classmates just take off. I mean, we are just getting smoked. And Gideon's looking up at me. He's like, Dad, my friends are all way up there, and I'm here. I'm like, just, just you wait, buddy. Just you wait. Just like sometimes, right, when you're, you're in the valley and you see everyone else doing things around you and you are just miserable, the Holy Spirit's there just saying, chill. Chill, there's a greater hope for you. And so I'm telling Gideon, I'm like, just, just relax, dude. Just relax. Just keep the pace. Run the race. We've got this. 400 yards later, we're passing everyone. People are, people are, I mean, kids are dropping like flies. I'm kidding you. Like, people are tripping. It's, it's pure chaos. And we're just, we're just jogging on through. We're making it. We're just, we're just running the race, right? And we're, we're about halfway, and I'm like, dude, how you doing? Do you want to, no, no, I'm doing good. Keep encouraging me, right? And we get to the end, and I was so proud of him. I'm like, do you want to sprint the end? Yeah, dad. And like here, I'm thinking like, okay, I'm gonna, he takes off. I can't even keep up with him, right? And that whole time, my sister and I are just running with him. We're there as encouragement. We're there to remind him of what we're trying to do. We're reminding him to focus in on what we train to do. Guys, that's what God does for us. Gideon had no idea to pace himself. You and I have no idea most of the time what we need to do to please God. The Holy Spirit is there for us. And so we have this great great confidence in what God's going to do in this future. We can have this great confidence in what the Spirit is doing in us now. It is active in you. If you are a believer in here this morning, this is true of you. And then you get to verse 28, and you see this last truth that Paul shares. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. You know what Paul's saying there? Everything you go through, God is at work in. The good, the bad, the ugly, God is in the midst of all of it. Now, let me tell you what this verse is not saying. This verse is not teaching prosperity theology. This, is, this verse is not telling you that if you are in a, a midst of a bad season of relationships that God's just getting you ready for that next great relationship. This is not God saying that if you are in a poor financial situation that next week you're going to win the lottery. This is not God telling you that if you're sick right now you, you will never be sick again. But 
what he's sharing is actually better than all that anyway. What he is saying is that there is a purpose in difficulty, trials, and suffering. And you don't have to like the suffering, but the end result is that God is there and it's for your good and his glory. That in the midst of fear and anxiety and suffering, God is involved in the most minute details. Think about this. Basically what Paul is saying here is God cares about everything. Everything, right? Have any of you guys ever thought about something that's not going that great in your life and someone asks you how they can be praying for you and you're afraid to share that because you're like, oh, that's not really that big of a deal. I shouldn't ask for that. Guess what? Your friend probably doesn't want to pray for that thing. Guess what? God wants to hear about it. I'm a dad. My six-year-old never stops talking. I hear about every little thing that goes on in his life. Sometimes I'm like, dude, I don't need to know this. God the Father cares about every detail and is involved in all of them because he's the better dad. The last thing that this verse shows us is you cannot ruin God's plans. You can't mess it up. How many of you guys are familiar with the story of Joseph? Right, throw that verse up from Genesis chapter 50 for me, will you, David? And here you have Joseph, his brothers hate him. He's been kind of had this promise given to him by God, right? And his brothers sell him off into slavery in, in Egypt. He goes through all sorts of ups and downs while he's in Egypt, and then his brothers come back, and he says to his brothers this, because he recognizes that God was in the midst of everything, the highs and the lows, his suffering and his experience of prosperity. He says to his brothers, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. That God is in the midst of everything. We have hope in future glory. The Spirit is there interceding for you and God works everything for your good. Good as he defines it, not as you define it. What confidence, guys. Like, like what could be better than this? The, the question I even ask myself as I'm reading this is why? Why does God even care to do this? Why is he involved? Why does he promise all this? Two things. Right, first one, verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. God takes you through suffering and is your future hope, is walking with you now by the promised Holy Spirit, and is working all things out for your good. Not for your good in the presence here and now, but for this. That everything you walk through has a purpose so that you might be conformed to the image of his son. To be more like Jesus. To change your character. Guys, I'm gonna let you in on a little secret of being a follower of Christ. And if you, if you get this, you will experience a lot more joy in this life. 
almost all of our struggles in this life are a failure to realize that everything good and bad that you walk through in this life is meant to make you more like Jesus. Let me give you some examples. Some of you guys think that you need to get married and that life will not have any joy until you get married and you have kids. First of all, I feel bad for your future spouse if that's the way you view marriage. <laughs> Second of all, marriage is not designed so that you can enjoy your best life now. It's designed to make you more like Jesus. Ephesians 5 shares that with us. A husband and a wife lovingly submitting to one another as Christ and the church submit to one another. Marriage is supposed to make you more like Jesus, not make you experience all this great, happy, fluffy Disney feelings. School is not just for you to get a degree. It's designed by God to make you more like Christ. Cancer is not just some disease people get. But in suffering from cancer or some other chronic disease, you can become more like Christ. Financial issues are not just there to make you miserable so that you can be delivered from them, but they're to make you more like Christ. By the way, everything that I've mentioned here, by the way, all the suffering that's tied with all four of those things that I listed there, Jesus walked through every one of them. Jesus never got married. Jesus suffered physically, emotionally. Jesus suffered financial hardship. The Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Jesus never got a degree. This is in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, if you'll throw that up there for me, David. That we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. That as a Christian, Everything you're walking through is to make you more like Christ. If you realize that, you'll stop wallowing in your suffering and you'll ask God to give you the strength and the resolve to suffer well for his glory. You'll pray prayers like the prayers that Christ prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, may, take this cup from me, but if not, I'll trust you. Not my will be done, but your will be done. That is life. Walking through suffering for the glory of God. Life now, guys, is often about the journey, not the destination. Because the destination has already been set. It's one, that's, uh, guys, this is one of the reasons why I hate the prosperity gospel so much. Because it promises you that the best thing you could possibly experience is something here on this earth, not God. Guys, the best thing we get is God. When 
Adam and Eve were sent out of Eden, being sent out of Eden wasn't the worst part. Being sent out of the presence of God was the worst part. And because of Christ, this has all been restored. And you and I, if we are a follower of Christ, are declared as sons. And we are heirs, partakers of the inheritance. And so number one, right, everything we walk through is done so that we might become more like Christ, therefore bringing him glory. Number two, why does God care this much and why does God do all this? Because he loves and cares for his creation. And look again at verses 29 and 30 with me. <clears throat> for those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, guys, I'm not gonna get into a six-hour discussion on the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. Let me just share with you the important thing that I want you to see out of this verse. Okay? God loves you dearly. Right, it says there that those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Now, foreknowledge, what, what is that? What the heck is that, right? We can get into a long, long discussion on that. Throw Matthew chapter 7, verse 23 up here. Here's what I want you to know. That anytime you see God talking about knowing somebody, he's talking about loving them and them being a part of his family. And so for Paul to say that God foreknew someone, it means God chose to set his love on someone before they deserved it. That God chose to love you even before birth. That's what that means. And it says that those he foreknew, he predestined. I'm not going to get into the specifics of that, but here's what you need to know. Not only did God choose to love you, but then he planned the way of salvation for you. Meaning, God, in his foreknowledge, in his love for his creation, created the plan and the design for Jesus Christ. I think it's fairly clear from Scripture to see that. That there is prophecy riddled throughout the Old Testament saying, this is what the Messiah will do. That God chose to love his creation and then made the plan and way of that salvation come to fruition in the life of Christ. Then it says that those he predestined, he called. Meaning he planned the path and then called someone that way. That means that someone came and shared the good news of the gospel with you. That you were called from not knowing him to knowing him. And then in that call... As you were called and came to faith, you were justified, meaning not guilty. That because God chose to love you and I, you are declared not guilty. That's the gospel. That God chooses to love that which is unlovable. God chooses to save that which is not worthy. God makes a plan in a way where there is no plan and way. Why? Because he loves you. 
And he loves you not because of anything you bring to the table or your own worthiness, but simply because he chooses to do so. And then I love this because here is that promise wrapped up one last time. Those he justified, he what? Glorified. Isn't that crazy? He talks about something that has yet to happen in the past. If I didn't know Paul was being intentional about his language there, I would think he would need someone to proofread his paper and fix his grammar. Paul is so confident in the goodness of God that he says, for those who are justified and declared not guilty, you will be in glory with Christ. That means all sin eradicated, all death eradicated, future glory reveling in the riches and worshiping God. I, I don't know what you guys are walking through when you come in here this morning. I don't, some, some of you guys, I know some of it. But everyone's, everyone's carrying something. Right, job unrest. As a pastor, I'm dealing with constant unrest all the time because most of you students that I get to come in contact with have no idea what you want to do after you graduate. And so you, you, you're like in this season of just constant tension and transition. Everyone is walking through something. The question is, is what is going to be the object of your hope in that season? Guys, uh, we are filled with lies daily on how to deal with suffering. Believe in yourself. Something's coming your way. Something's coming. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know what it is. Something is coming. There, there is some truth in that. You got to believe to receive, right? You know, whatever line you want to throw out there, right? God is your hope. God is walking through your season of suffering. And he's working it out for your good and his glory. And he has promised he is going to be with you beginning, middle, and end. And he is this. And he is this. He is the end. I pray that if we don't take anything else away today, that we would see this. God is our hope. Let God be your hope. As we take communion here in just a minute, right? We take communion every week. We're gonna, I'm just gonna ask you to do this. That if you're a Christian here this morning, that you just confess any sin that you might be aware of. And that you would come up here and you would take communion joyfully. Right? Thanking God that he gave his only son for the forgiveness of your sins. Communion is an act of worship, not an act of contrition. And then as you go back to your seat, that you would just worship and you would ask God to help you hope in him. One of the most comforting lines of all of Scripture to me is when Christ is talking to the centurion and he says that, you know, that he believes that he can heal his daughter and he says, he's like, God, Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. 
you have the helper. The Holy Spirit is there. Rest in the hope of God that you are sealed, that you are his, that he is working all things out for your good and his glory and that you can trust him. And then let's live life that way. Let's live life hopeful and joyful, not joyless and cranky. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Man, you're good. Man, it's good to hope in you, Jesus. Father, forgive us of our sins. Forgive us for trying to place our hope and our trust in ourselves. Forgive us for believing that we, in some way, might be the hope in our sufferings, or that our sufferings are even the biggest deal in our lives right now. Father, you are far greater than any of that. Lord, deliver us for your glory. And then in the midst of our suffering, may we do it to make much of you. I'm so encouraged this morning, Lord. Thank you for your word. May we continue to worship you in spirit and in truth. And I ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.